This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by GHD Unplugged. Confidence you can carry with you for good hair days anytime, anywhere. I don't want to go through this life and look back and say, why didn't I? Why wasn't I? You know, why couldn't I? Of those four attempts when we didn't make it that were, so to speak, failures, were rich, rich journeys. We were on a steep learning curve each time. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Well, today's is a guest who I'd count as one of my favourite speakers of all time, who I was lucky enough to hear from on Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island during our incredible trip with Business Chicks in 2019. I've been hoping to share this amazing woman's infectious enthusiasm, energetic storytelling and mind-blowing story since that moment, nearly two years ago now, and I'm so, so excited to finally share her with you now. Diana Nyad was probably always destined to be a legendary swimmer with her surname meaning water nymph in Greek mythology, which I know because it was the name of one of my houses in high school. <laughs> with many achievements in competitive swimming over her lifetime, it was an idea that hit her at nine years old to swim from Cuba to Florida that never left her. Starting from 2010, Diana began the enormous quest to swim over 50 hours solo through freezing shark and jellyfish infested waters, making not one, not two, but five attempts before successfully covering the 180 kilometres and, get this, at 64 years old. As Hillary Clinton puts it perfectly, when you're facing big challenges in your life, you can simply think about Diana and nearly anything else seems doable by comparison. Before we jump in, I just wanted to throw a very big shout out to Emma Isaacs and the Business Chicks team again for continually creating invaluable unforgettable experiences for so many of us and making some of the world's most fascinating and inspiring people like Diana accessible to its members. If you aren't already a member, I can't recommend anything more highly for seizing your yay, so I'll pop a link in the show notes. I hope you are as invigorated and inspired by this one as I am. And please excuse a little bit scratchier audio than usual. The tech woes got us good, but in true Diana fashion, we pressed on. Oh, Diana, it is so lovely to see you again. You too. So how have you been? So was it fall of 2019 that we were in Necker Island or was it 2018? 2019. So nearly yeah, two so years. Richard's been in space now. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> yeah, talk about a dream. You know, when I was with him, he said to me, and it really affected me, we were just kind of walking. We were walking from down by the tennis courts up to the big house. And he said, you see those you know, kind of barracks over there. Well, that's where the tennis pros and, you know, a lot of the workers on the grounds live. And then they all live on different islands close by. But when they have to spend the night here, that's, and he said, the truth is, if I lost all of this tomorrow, I could, I could live 
in one of those barracks. My wife could too. But what has really given me power with the money I have and the success I've had is that I can call anybody in the world. If I call the Pope tomorrow, <laughs> he will return my call. And that Amazing. is what power is. If you can have influencers believe in what you believe in and help you toward your, you know, making a better world, that's what I value. Not all these beautiful, expensive things, you know, and I was really impressed by that. And I really believed it. I agree actually so much. That's one of the biggest things I took away from our wonderful time on the island was that shift for all of us, I think, who'd been chasing a certain type of success and thinking that that was what we were heading towards and actually yeah. realizing that someone who has already reached that pinnacle over and over and over again, his biggest takeaway for all of us was that's not the be all and end all. That it, what you think you're striving for is not necessarily what you need to be striving for. And I think it was good for us all to see that. I think as you get older too, you know, Richard and I are exactly the same age and we had, I think, some simpatico about, now I can't compare my success to his because it's not of that level, but I think as you get older, how old are you now, for instance? 32. 32. So, you know, we're quite a bit older. I'll be 72 in a month or so. And, you know, no matter what, I feel vital. I'm very, you know, I've got a lot of energy. I've got a lot to do left in life, but you have to get real. 72 is not 32. And... <laughs> I think that your goals broaden out to include other people and include the world at large. When you're younger, you, you know, you could, you could be absurd and take it to a, an infant. You know, what, an infant's life is all about, you know, what milk can I get? What hugs can I get? It's all about me, 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 of course. And then as you get older, you start looking outside yourself. And I, and I think maybe Richard has achieved that. I know in my life, I've been going that direction. Well, let's officially kick off this episode. I already started recording because we were having such a good chat. <laughs> so welcome, Diana, to Seize the A. It is just so delightful to see you. As we just mentioned, we had been on Necker Island together nearly two years ago, and it was one right up there with one of the most transformative experiences of my life. And I imagine for all of us on the island, we took away something very, very special. And one of the most special that I took away was getting to hear you speak. It was something that it's funny you mentioned that you you don't feel like you you could compare yourself to Richard. I absolutely think that you could, particularly because for people like myself, you suspend the concept of age in a really beautiful way that you don't see very often in a society that often sees aging as a bad thing. You seem to have only kept getting more and more vital as time has gone on, which is why I'm so excited <laughs> to share your story. But I love to start every episode by asking people what the most down to earth thing and relatable thing is about them. Because I do think we often put people on a pedestal or our media and perceived social media identities can be a bit glossy and particularly with successes like yours. Knowing also that one of the other recent podcasts you've been on was Hillary Clinton's podcast of all people's. <laughs> I definitely put you on a pedestal, but what would you say is the most relatable thing about you? Well, I don't mean to lay this on you, but this is about as normal and relatable as it can get. This Sunday, so it's only a couple of days ago, I had to say my final goodbyes to my beloved hound dog, Teddy. <gasps> we spent 16 years of sublime companionship together. He made this home and my life so special. So to have the final hug, and uh, I've been crying rivers of tears. I'm probably gonna cry another one right oh. in front of you. 
Oh, Diane. But you know, I've been hearing, not that I even have put it out there far and wide, you know, in terms of Facebook and all that, but I've been hearing from, you know, all my friends and family from, from far and wide, and they know what the, what a dog's love, what an animal's love is. And uh, it's, you know, we're lucky if we have love of any sort, you have love of a spouse or, you know, love of a parent or a child, but it's, it's just different. It's not to compare, but that nonverbal, loyal, every day. And so I've been looking for him. You know, it's only the second day and I'm, I'm looking, Teddy, where are you? Come back, let me love you. Let me love you again. So, you know, talk about something that's not shimmery superhuman. Millions of us feel it. I don't know if you ever heard the quote, but it goes, the best defense of atheism is that if there were a God, our animals would live the same lifespan we do instead of every 12, 14, 16 years going through the devastating death of, the, of, the, of a family member that's so cherished in your heart. Uh, but it's just not the case. I've gone through it before and that didn't make this time any easier. So, you know, talk about a relatable human experience. That's my latest one. And it's it's, it's profound. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear that. And, you know, honestly, I was so, so incredibly humbled that you agreed to come on the show. But knowing that you had the passing of our little fur babies <laughs> in the last two days, that even makes me triply as humbled because I wouldn't be showing up on podcast <laughs> two days after. <gasps> But isn't it? It's it's one of the lessons we learn from our animals because they don't live as long as we do. That we love again. We need to we need to live. We need to live on. So I've cried plenty. I'm going to cry plenty more. Last night I will admit that I was never a John Denver fan. May he rest in peace. But I just it wasn't my kind of music. But last night Bonnie and I were up and we were crying and we were telling all our Teddy stories again and again. He was gone. <laughs> and um, the, on the radio, the John Denver song came, which says, come let me love you. Come love me again. And I cried another river of tears. <laughs> you know, I, I could have said to you today, I'm just not up to it, but we, we need to. He, he, he's taught me. He's gone and I can cry and I'm sure I will for many days to come. I'll miss him forever. But um, I need to. I need to live a life. And, mm. and, and he, he was a great professor of that. <laughs> live every day. I heard a beautiful quote as well that always makes me feel better about it, that don't lament that your dog doesn't live for your entire life because you were there in his entire life. And that makes me feel so happy that he never ne had to know a day without you and without your love. And, you know, that I love that quote. And to add to it, you know, Sarah, I have virtually my whole life been traveling. I just lived my life on the road, except for the training, actually, for the Cuba swim. But because of COVID, starting March 2020 until now, I have not been on a plane. You know, all the speeches have been virtual. I've turned down every possible trip that, that I might have taken because I wanted to see my dog through the twilight of his life instead of calling the dog sitter and hearing how his legs were failing or how he was doing. I observed him and cuddled him. And, and I, I do think it extended his life and a quality, not just a time frame. I, listen, people died through COVID. They're still dying. People couldn't go to the hospital to say goodbye to their, their family and their friends. People lost their businesses. People crumbled financially. So, so I was luck, one of the lucky ones. You know, Nothing devastating happened to me. But I will say that it was a positive life experience, COVID, for me in that 
because of being home, I had some, some sort of what you might call everyday life values, eating dinner with Bonnie every night instead of eating in some airport and being with my Teddy every day and every night for the last year and a half. So I'm one of the few maybe could say that I was grateful for the, for the epidemic in, in, a, in a way. Don't let me sound, you know, wrong. <laughs> Just in my selfish little dog moment, I was grateful. No, I absolutely agree. I think while, of course, we wouldn't wish for it to happen the way that it did, there are many silver linings in terms of pace reevaluation and life priorities and those little moments, I call them little yays every day. In the context of seizing the yay, I think we're always so pulled forward by this relentless forward motion towards productivity and busyness and all for things often that we love that are wonderful opportunities, but it does mean sometimes you're going so quickly, you don't, your emotions don't have time to catch up with you that you just can't appreciate those small things like having dinner together. So I'm so glad that you've been able to find little silver linings in the last couple of years. But as you mentioned, you have had a very incredibly busy, jam-packed, wonderful life, and you are one of the most wonderful storytellers I have ever heard. In fact, the moment you got out your bugle was just one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> so <laughs> the very first section is your way TA, which is basically explaining and going through all of the different chapters from very young Diana to now, because I think people often walk into your life at this chapter, knowing how clear of purpose you are and what you know, what your values are and how much direction you have about everything you do and assume that you arrived there one day and you just knew what, you know, what you were meant to do on this earth. But I don't think it happens that way and it definitely doesn't happen in a straight line like most people assume. So take us back to very young Diana. What were you like as a kid? I mean, I feel like the fact that your surname is also a water nymph in Greek mythology is actually pretty damn cool. (laughs) And, uh, you know, even before I answer you, Sarah, we'll go back to, you know, my youth, which is so long ago, honestly, I can barely remember anything. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, it's it's often a cliched question that a lot of interviews ask someone who's, you know, a, a bit older, and they'll say, what today would you tell your 20-year-old self? And I say, that's patently absurd. Uh, you, know, you know, the French expression goes, if only we knew more as the younger person and we could do more as the older person. But, you know, life is meant to be learned as you learn it. So I can't take, you know, this supposed wisdom I have at 71, or let's call it 72, we're just a month shy. And by the way, Americans, better than anyone in the world, hold on to our ages. I, I'm not 72, it's for 12 more hours. Don't call me 72. I'm not 72, but anyway, I'm almost 72, so let's just call it that. How in the world would that 20-year-old have 50 years of heartache and and growing up and, and becoming a, you know, having perspective on the rest of the world? How would she, how can I give that wisdom to that 20 year old, it's just, it's just absurd. So I just want to throw that in first and say that, you know, I guess as a young person, and I like to think Sarah, one of the privileges of my life has been travel. I sometimes I can pick up the globe and I say, I, you know, it's not like lived everywhere, surely, but I've almost been everywhere. I've been to all the countries on the continent of Africa, same South America, all the cities in Western Europe, just about everywhere, Antarctica, et cetera. And one thing I find is that, yes, people have talents depending on what your culture appreciates. People have luck 
depending on, you know, your birthright and, uh, and some circumstances, you know, as you move through life. But I do think that the 7 billion people on the planet today, let's say a caveat of almost half, don't even have enough water to drink every day. But of yeah. the three and a half billion, like you and me, or you and I, I should say, who have some choices and have been, you know, we could say fortunate in a lot of ways. I think that basically we're, we're all the same. We want to be part of a community that, that we help each other in. We want to live and love and dance and eat and drink. And, you know, I don't care whether you're wearing a $3,000 pinstripe suit <laughs> or you're in, a, you're in a hut, you know, in the Maasai tribe in Kenya. Those, those particular facets, the basics of human life are there. So I don't consider myself special at all. I think I, I, I am one of three and a half billion who are lucky enough to make some choices and to have clean water every day. But one thing that might have been a little different for me as a child, and I really don't know where it came from. I, I, don't, I didn't have a parent who sat me down with this or I didn't read some book where I got this or see some movie where this was something that came to me. But most kids, of course, if you're under, let's say, age 10, they're not focused on, you know, when they're going to be 18. They can't even imagine being 11. So they're very much just waking up and eating their cereal and running around and petting their dog and doing what they do. But for some reason, I had a pressure. I felt the pressure of the ticking clock when I was very young, and I felt it every single day. Wow. I was in fifth grade, so I was 10 years old. That's our, our grade system. And um, the teacher said we should write an essay about what you want to do for the rest of your life. And almost all the kids wrote, well, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a doctor. I want to blah, blah, blah. And my essay was all about the desperate passage of time. I said, I'm fun. And uh, I didn't get to know my grandparents, but I understand that they lived to be into their early or mid-80s, all of them. That means I only have 70 years to live. I, I, I've got to get busy. I've already wasted the first 10. I got to get busy. So something about me is driven to go to sleep every night, where I've, whether I've done something for myself or my dog or the world at large, with no regrets. Yeah. I don't want to go through this life and look back and say, why didn't I? Why wasn't I? You know, why couldn't I? You know, and it's true. Like I said, I can't make my 20-year-old self know what I know now. But I bet you I was doing the best I could with whatever skills I had at the age of 20, whatever mentors I didn't have at the age of 20. And I try to go to bed every night, just like that 10-year-old me did, saying, wow. I just couldn't have done any more with that day. Let's get a little sleep and get up and do it again. You know, I, I think that really sums up. I could tell you, oh, I started swimming then and I, I was living by the ocean and that's why I'm sort of involved with it. My whole life. There are all those details, but the, I think the basic, you know, sort of life value that I got somehow, don't know how early <laughs> was, don't waste it. Don't look back at any of it with any regrets. That is extraordinary because I do think it takes a lot of people an entire lifetime to kind of reach that realisation, after which I don't think anything is a waste of time and I also never think it is too late not to have a big epiphany and start to seize the most of what time you do have. But I think it does 
take a lot of people a lot longer, some kind of breakdown in the middle first, a couple of like veering off down different directions and coming back. But I love what you said about not going back and wanting to change anything because I often have a similar response when I get asked, what would you tell your 13-year-old self? And of course, I'd want to go back and hold myself in a tender embrace and say, you don't need all that makeup and don't worry about boys and like, you know, all the things you think are the end of the world and not a drip in the ocean compared to what will come. But again, I think you you do. You have to learn all those things going forward, which means that at any one chapter in my life, even if I didn't go on and do all of those things forever, like my legal career didn't stay in that forever, I never think of it as a waste because it got me the knowledge that I needed to get to the next step. And I think what the way we perceive success today does is makes things look linear. Like here is where I am now. There is where I want to be. There is success, happiness. I'll be happy when I get there, which means no one's ever actually happy and fulfilled because they're never there. That yardstick just keeps moving out and out and out rather than just finding little chapters along the way that are your exact fulfillment in that moment, which is what I love about you because even in the water, which you did jump in, I think you started swimming seriously at seven and then have been in the water ever since, there have been different versions of that. There was an Olympic attempt, then there was marathon swimming, then there was a hiatus completely after 30 where you stopped professional swimming. And even within one career or life path, there's been so many different iterations of what that looks like, which I, again, I don't think people give themselves permission to do. They think we've got to find our purpose and stick with it forever, but it's evolving all the time. So can you talk us through that career? Yeah, I find a lot of young people your age come to me, you know, I might give a speech somewhere and a lot of younger people in their 20s and 30s come to me and say, I have energy, I have passion, I have discipline, but I don't know, you know, what my dream is. Yeah. I, I, I just, I'm not feeling anything that I really want to chase the way you've chased your dreams. And my answer to that is, yeah, it's not always easy. It's not always like, you know, there's some clear, well-defined world record or, you know, <laughs> the book that you've got to write, whatever it is. But what I say to people is, and you know, people have said it in, in more poetic ways than I'll come up with, but Goethe said it is there, there's a there's a magic in beginning things. And I mm. truly believe that you don't need to finish everything you begin. You don't want to quit quickly. You know, you don't want to just give it a little try. And if it doesn't work for you, you know, you don't get up and get knocked down again and try again. But if it really isn't your dream, if you're just if you're suffering from, you know, not being able to take a step in any direction. Take a step in some direction. Just say, you know, I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll pursue a degree in, in that, in philosophy. I've always been interested, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it. What am I going to do? Make a living as a philosopher? <laughs> you know, but, but at least, it, you know, it, it interests me, it stirs me. And then you go because you're sit of, sick of sitting around doing nothing, hoping that a white knight is going to ride through your horse and grab you up and show you the way to, you know, where you should go. You take a step toward that degree and you find out. Maybe after a year you say, it wasn't a waste of time. It was worthwhile reading Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, <laughs> but it's, it's not the real me. But while I was taking that step, I had a vision and other things came to me. And in reading Kierkegaard, I decided, you know, what I really want to do is sail around the world. That's what I really want to do. I want to be in a sailboat and be poor and catch fish every day. And I want to sail around the world and see the whole world by the ocean. I'm making all this up, but I'm just saying, take a step somewhere and there's no shame in not finishing that avenue. Now, if it's really a dream of yours, 
and it's deep in your soul and heart and you're on your way and you've taken the steps but you've gotten knocked down and you, you can't get there. Now I say, you don't give up. You get back up, you take the more steps, you get knocked down again. And if you really have it in your resolve, deep in your soul, that that's where you wanna go, that's what you wanna do, now you don't give up. That wasn't just a, well, I don't know what to do. I'll take a couple steps this way. If it doesn't work out, I'll take a couple steps that way. I started a PhD in my 20s in comparative literature. Really? And, uh, you know, I loved it. I was, I was reading French and German novels all day and discussing them. My mother would say, well, that's great. How are you going to make a living, you know, reading <laughs> French novels? But I was, I was in, this, in this pursuit, and I swam around Manhattan Island in the middle of that degree, it came, became a big deal. And all of a sudden I, I had a different vision and wanted to go for Cuba and wanted to be a sports announcer. And so I let that degree behind. Has that bothered me? My whole life have I been saying, I've got to finish that PhD in comparative <laughs> literature. I, I can't be unsuccessful. No, I don't care about it, but it was worthwhile. It was worth the few steps I took toward that PhD. And I left it behind and something else bubbled up that was more the real me. So, you know, there are sort of two factions I'm talking about. If you don't know what to do and you don't have a dream in mind, do something. Don't just sit around hoping it'll come to you. But if you have a big dream and you, you, want, you want to have a child, you know, something really that's going to take a, a, all, all your life to dedicate yourself to, now you stick with it. You go and that child becomes your priority and you live it and eat, no matter how tough it is, you get to the other side with that child. Oh my gosh, I, this is why I love talking to you so much. You are so energizing and invigorating and it's just so true. If, if you don't know what you want to do, the time's going to pass anyway. So you might as well do something. But once you do know what you want to do, I thought it was actually interesting for the woman who has made five attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida to say, you don't, you don't necessarily have to finish something. I'm like, I feel like this woman needs to finish something. But I love the caveat that if it turns out not to be what you want, there is no shame in not finishing something that doesn't serve you anymore. Because finding out that you don't like something, I think, is just as valuable as finding out what you do like, because it's still a step closer to the thing that you do want to do. So yeah. given that you did have this big calling to do this gigantic, enormous swim, and passion enough to get you through five attempts of what is, I can only imagine how, I can't even imagine how grueling it must have been. And I've already heard the story, but it gives me goosebumps every time. Knowing that that was your goal, how did the Olympic attempt play into it? How did the shorter distance swimming? And then how do you decide to close that chapter, take a break from swimming, come back to it? Talk us through how you ultimately got to that first attempt. Because there are a lot of different things first. Yeah, but the truth is, Sarah, you know, you know, often I'm older than you are, so sometimes I read people's versions of my life and say, yeah, they don't have it quite right. Because you can, you, you know, if you want to tell your life, you tell it yourself. So people have written about, oh, I had this heart disease, which I did. It was called endocarditis. It's not the end of the world, but I was three months 
in strict lay down bed rest. And that was in the middle of my sprint swimming teenage career. And uh, so yes, I lost some muscle, I lost some speed. But the truth is, I wasn't one of the best swimmers in the world. I wasn't one of the top sprinters in the United States. I didn't know as a teenager that my talent was swimming powerful miles over the curvature of the earth. I thought <laughs> swimming was swimming in a 50 meter pool, fast as you could from end to end, you know? So I, I can't ever say it's been written about me that I would have, maybe could have made the 68th Olympic team. It's not true. I wasn't in that elite category. No, I wasn't. But I found out after, you know, high school ended and sprint swimming ended, I did my best to try to make it to the trials not the team, just to the trials of the 68 Olympics. Didn't make it there. And uh, I didn't know about marathon swimming. I went on to life. I was going to college and then I went to graduate school. And a friend of mine said, you know, I, you know there's this sport called uh, marathon swimming. I've seen you. I was just swimming laps for exercise in the, in the Columbia University pool. And he said, my God, you've got this beautiful gliding perfect. <laughs> so you know that the earth is four-fifths water? Do you know that people all over the world stand on shores and a gun goes off and they race each other to the other side of the lake or the ocean <laughs> or the river? And why don't you do that? It's a sport. Why, why aren't you in that sport? And so I, I joined that sport. So, but it wasn't a big dream of mine little. Now, I will say that the Cuba swim was a big dream of mine. I was nine years old, living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Those of you from, you know, from down under don't know, it's very close to Miami. And in 1959, the Cuban Revolution happened. Yes. Fidel Castro came in to, you know, some people say to save Cuba and turn it from a third world country into a second world country so that people could have medicine and education. There are a whole bunch of other Cubans who will say he came in to be a despot and took over. So that's for all you to decide. But nevertheless, thousands of Cubans had 24 hours to leave if they didn't want to live under the Fidel Castro regime. They came to my hometown and overnight, all my friends were Cuban. We were eating Cuban food. We were dancing salsa in the living room. <laughs> and uh, we were flying the Cuban flag. And I became, like many people, obsessed with the mystique of this forbidden island right off our shores. And one day, I was on the beach. I was nine years old with my French mother, who spoke with a very thick accent. My father also spoke with a thick accent. So that's right there. That's a lot of fun at home <laughs> when you can't really understand either of your parents. And I said to my mom, Mom, I was already a little swimmer. You know, I, I said, Mom, I know Cuba's out there. Where is it? I can't see it. And she lifted up Jean and she said, well, it's this way. No, 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 it's more this way over there. Havana is just across the horizon right there. As a matter of fact, it is so close. You, you little champion swimmer, you, you could almost swim there. Swim there? Are you kidding? <laughs> I can swim there and you can't even see it. So I wasn't yet a distant swimmer, but that, that little nugget of vision of swimming all the way to Cuba. And then 
I did, you know, know later on in research that from 10 years before that, since 1950, the great marathon swimmers of the world, and many are from Australia, had tried to swim from Cuba to Florida. It became the Mount Everest of the Earth's oceans to a swimmer. There are a lot of great swims, you know, in Tasmania and, you know, off Cairns and uh, the, the English Channel and all over, but the Cuba swim has been called the Mount Everest of the Earth's oceans. So that always, even before I became a marathon swimmer in my 20s, was always kind of somehow fluttering around back here. <laughs> I love that so much. I feel like the dots have always been there and then just it took a little while for them all to connect together. But finally, you did actually get in the water for this, what, more than 50-hour swim and it and five times. I mean, this is what blows my mind in a probably in a generation where we're a bit instant gratuity focused where we see like one attempt maybe not even a a full-hearted attempt if it doesn't go if there's one adversity we're like oh I failed I'm not going to try again like there's not the same resilience maybe mass generalization but I think we're so fast-paced that we kind of like try you know put our toe in the water and go oh I wasn't very good at that move on for someone to have done this five times and not know and not be guaranteed that the fifth time you're getting back for another grueling 50-hour swim and to keep going, how? How? I mean, the fact that you're in front of me and have survived this blows my mind. What does it even feel like to swim that far? But then to not make it and then to, to do it again, to get your head in the game, like I just, you're like a goddess in my brain. Well, it means a lot to me that you appreciate, you know, how long the journey was because... <laughs> You know, you could say that it wouldn't that be enough if you just dived in the ocean in Havana and emerged on the Florida beach 52 hours and 54 minutes later. And by the way, you're never allowed to touch the boat, never allowed to grab onto the kayak. So if you stop, it's still on your own steam, you're treading water to take down a little bit of fuel and stuff, but you are in the water and moving for that entire 52 hours, 54 minutes. But my team knows that that's, that's the tip of the iceberg. Not only did we have four previous attempts, each one about as long as that one, 51 hours this time, 48 hours another time, you know, going in the wrong direction, uh, sharks and jellyfish bothering us, and I never gave up, but Mother Nature was too big on the other four times. And as soon as we knew we couldn't make it, the navigator, Bonnie, my head handler and head of the expedition, the shark divers, all of the main crew, I'd come and tread water and I'd near the boat. They'd tell me that we were far, far off course, that the storm that went through blew us to the east and we couldn't make land. Well then, just like if you are on Mount Everest and a hundred mile an hour wind comes up, you don't, you're not in a position of, well, my will will overcome a hundred mile an hour wind. You save your life and you start going down and you say, it just wasn't our day we're gonna to have to come back another day. So that's what happened on the four previous attempts. One way back in the 70s when I was young, in my 20s, and, and the other three attempts were later in my 60s when I went back to chase this dream again. But really, even more, that's what our team knows, that's what Bonnie lived with me and John Bartlett, the navigator, all of the core team, wasn't really those attempts because once you're on the attempt, your adrenaline's going, you're, you're, in, the, you're in the big dance. 
So there isn't a problem with your resolution and with your, you know, your ability to overtake pain. But what about the training? And isn't this true of all athletes, I should say, of everybody? Mm. You know, you see when Roger Federer has gone to, to the grass and Wimbledon and cried when he's won. And I'm so afraid we may never see him win again. We're at that stage of his career. But what an elegant, beautiful champion. But when he's gone to his knees on the grass of Wimbledon and cried, it isn't because of that match. It's because nobody knows, like him and his team, what he's gone through. How many hundreds of thousands of backhands down the line of, of you know, long, grueling, you know, practices. Well, marathon swimming, I respect all sports. I'm not sure there's a more grueling sport in terms of lonely hours. You know, it just, you've got a tight cap on, you've got fogged over goggles, you don't hear anything, you don't see anything. So I would go out early in the season if I were going to be doing the swim in the summer, I'd go out in November, December, and in the Caribbean, swim 10 hours one day. I'm not in shape for that yet. I'm, I'm that night, I'm in the fetal position on the shower floor. I can't even get up for dinner. But the next day, I get up and I do 11 hours. And the next day I get up and I do 12 hours. And by the, by the end of the training swim, before heading to Key West, and getting ready to sequester to get over to Cuba when the weather looks right. We're doing 16, 18, and 24 hour swims. I mean, <laughs> just, uh, you know, in, in, even in the world of marathon swimming, it's extreme. So that's, honestly, when I reached that shore finally, of course, there was a relief, there was a joy in the victory and to share it with my team. But honestly, Sarah, more than anything, what I was filled with was I never slept in. If it was 2 a.m. and we were doing a 14-hour swim and I had to get up to start eating and stretching and get ready, I never said, eh, not today. I don't feel like it. You know, I never said, just give me one more hour of sleep. Let's, let's start a little bit later. I got up at 2 a.m. every single time. And that's what I remember. When I hit that beach, I said, you did it. You refused to, to, to do it in any way less than what it would take to get across this ocean. So that, that, was the, that was the fuel of it and the fire of it, honestly. Oh, my gosh. I think that's such an important reminder because people see these big titles, CNN, Diana Nyad, Swims from Cuba to Florida, and it's like, oh, wow, this woman just got in the water and swam all the way there and successfully made it. But it's like business or any great success that has those big titles and like glossy exterior you know, people always laugh about, I had Samantha Wills on the podcast recently who made it from, you know, a Bondi market making beaded jewellery on her dining table to on the Sex and the City cast, J-Lo, like her jewellery was everywhere from this little Australian business. She's like, yeah, it took me 12 years to become an overnight success. Like that's what it got referred to as. And she's like, no, no, there is no overnight success. It's just the narrative that gets pushed out there later is only the achievement, not what it took to get there. That's a great story, hers. And I think it's so important that young people hear you say this because, you know, people dream you. First of all, if you see a little kid, they're watching the Olympics. So, you know, you can say a a six-year-old says, I'm going to be in the Olympics. And they're allowed to say that. They don't know. They don't know what it's going to take. But, it, you know, you use the word instant gratification just a little bit ago. There are young people now and, you know, everything is quick by the Internet and social media and whatnot who say, "I'm, I'm, I'm going to be that jeweler. I'm, I'm going to make millions of dollars. I'm, I'm doing jewelry in my own home, but they, they don't know what the discipline and the vision and the teamwork and, the, you know, and the failures 
that are that are going to take to get there. And, um, mm. you know, they're going to be disappointed when they find out that it does not come quickly. I, I can't think of any success story that truly was overnight. I can't think of one. Yeah, I think they, just, they don't exist. <laughs> but that's also changed my relationship. I mean, even the podcast alone and hearing how much it does take 10, 20 years, sometimes 30, 40, 50 years even for some people to find their their purpose in the in the iteration and the version that it that becomes the thing that they've waited for their whole life is that like my relationship to failure has changed a lot as well because I think I, I, you once would see it as a stop sign but it's just a speed bump on the way to refining and tweaking to trying again and that's why I love your story so much because you don't hear of many people who achieve something on the fifth attempt because most people don't make the fifth attempt because it's it's five times more than they expect it's going to take them. Well, in this particular case, nobody even went for the second attempt. <laughs> <laughs> Most people who tried this swim, there's so much da- danger out there. It's grueling. They just say, never coming back. They're going to go on to some <laughs> other dream. But, you know, let's talk about the word failure for a second. I don't know. I think to, to sum it up is to, to go back to that whole Greek debate of, are we involved in the destination only? And everything we do, you know, it's not worthwhile unless we reach the final destination. Or are we engaged in the journey and we are thirsty for all the life living and the life lessons that come of traveling that journey? And that's what all those, you know, Greek stories were about. And so, yes, I was okay with people saying, oh, the third attempt and she failed. Oh, the fourth attempt, she failed again because... You know, if you want to just put it in kind of black and white terms, I didn't make it to the shore of Florida where I said I was aiming to go to. But the life experience of those four attempts when we didn't make it that were, so to speak, failures were rich, rich journeys that all of us on that team, we were involved with with deep friendship and trust in each other. We were on a steep learning curve each time. Every expedition on Mother Earth comes home, you know, with new scientific data and new uh, tech, you know, elements to learn, with new ways to tap into the human spirit and and to work together as a team. So we were growing and we were adventuring and there wasn't one person on that team who I don't think wouldn't have gone back for a sixth and a seventh, not one of them ever paid a dime. No money, they were giving time off, taking time away from their families, their businesses, but they were involved in history. They were involved in the grandest adventure of their lives. You know, Sarah, I went to a school in New York City when it was over, the fifth successful one, and uh, it was a great thing. There were 800 kids in the school, and they decided to take their entire school year, the teachers did, and using the Cuba swim as the basis for their studies. So whether it was biology, or writing or music or art. It was all about the Cuba swim. So I was so honored and they had a big assembly and there was one kid from each grade, first grade through eighth grade, who had been chosen to come up to take the microphone and ask me a question. The third grader was named Joaquin and he was adorable. He had his shirt buttoned up like this and his hair was parted perfectly. And he came up and he said, well, Miss Nyad, my question is, If you didn't make it on the fifth time, would you have tried again? 
And I said, Joaquin, do you know what the word moot means, M-O-O-T? And he said, no. So an eighth grade girl came up and she gave the definition moot is that that question is just, it's not pertinent anymore because you did make it. So it's hard to imagine that you didn't make it. And so I explained to him what moot went and he said, okay, well, but still, would you have tried again? (laughs) I said, Joaquin, let's say yes. Let's say I would have tried to the end of my life to try to make that swim because I, I had it so deep, you know, in my soul to, to make it across. A quick break to share a recent yay maker of mine from the legendary team at GHD. You guys know I start to bang on a lot about the things that make life easier in some way, but you will thank me for this one. GHD has seen me through the dead straight years, the beachy wave years, and now the fun entrepreneur years with the launch of their new GHD Unplugged cordless styler that has portable power and performance. I have literally found myself driving from public toilet to public toilet before, trying to find somewhere with a PowerPoint when I'm rushing between events and having a bad hair day. But luckily for everyone, those days are now over thanks to this travel-friendly handbag hairstyling hero that's a serious game-changer. It's not only USB-C chargeable and compact enough to fit in your handbag, it also has the same powerful performance of your regular GHD tools, maintaining that optimum 185 degrees for styling so your hair is heavenly and healthy. You can discreetly touch up through the day for that good hair day confidence everywhere you go. So much yay. Available in the best salon, selected retailers or ghdhair.com. Another interesting facet of success, I think, is that then sometimes because you you don't know when the successful swim is going to happen. You don't really plan your life after that because you're sort of like, well, what if I have to just keep going back again? And I think it's quite an adjustment for a lot of people when they do achieve a milestone that was for so long such a big part of their life because then you sort of have to readjust. Well, like now what? I'm here. What do I do? But I love that you have turned it into so many amazing things that honour the planet and getting out in nature, everwalk.com, oceanscommit.com are two wonderful new things that are, I mean, you obviously representing in that amazing t-shirt. <laughs> I also love that one of the questions I would have loved to ask you is, you know, when the movie comes out, who would you love in the world to play you in the movie? Except the movie is coming out and you already know who's playing you in the movie. Annette Benning. How, how can I ever look that good? I mean, Annette <laughs> Benning, one of the great actresses of our time, Annette Benning has signed to play me in the upcoming movie. You know, it hasn't been shot yet. So when I say upcoming, you know, who knows if it'll be a year or two from now when it actually gets made. But the magic of it is, as I tried four times before I made it, Annette Benning has been nominated four times for Best Actress Oscar. So wouldn't it be a little bit of magic fairy dust if she won on her fifth time, the way I made it on my fifth time? So- <laughs> <laughs> this is and this is one great actress when you look at her body of work and she's really engaged and engrossed in in my life and in the part and they're casting Bonnie's part now it's a very <gasps> big actress also but uh, we're not supposed to say who because the deal hasn't been made yet and uh, so if it falls through it's not right to mention her but it's a big mm. actress and you know it's not often as a matter of fact I I don't I don't know the history of cinema you don't see two women as the heroic leads 
you know, women are always involved in what, what like Thelma and Louise, which is way before your time, but it was a big two actresses, you know, and it was a terrific movie. It was entertaining, but it was really about two women who men had done them wrong. And mm. this was their movie to get back at them. It was all about, you know, their relationship with the men. And in this movie, it's not a lesbian movie. Bonnie and I are, you know, not, not in that relationship or we're not playing that role in this movie. It's just two women who happen to be doing something very strong and very, you know, undeniable in terms of strength and the men on our team so so strong themselves and knowledgeable just fell right in with us like we were the two leaders and and we respected everybody but the men you know were were listening to us and following what we wanted to do and the way we wanted to do it and i think it's a it's an important message and one that isn't out there often. Well, I think with two previously Oscar-winning directors taking on the film, I think there's a very high chance that there could be some magic in there for the magical number five for Annette. <laughs> Jimmy Chin and his wife Chai directed the Oscar-winning documentary, so it wasn't a feature. Oh, that's right. But it was called yeah. Free Solo, and if you haven't seen it, it's... I mean, it's gripping, you know. That guy, Alex, holds onto rocks with not his fingers, but the first <laughs> digit of his fingers, a mile in the air. Forget about it. My heart was pounding. I thought, you couldn't pay me a billion dollars to, to go up there and try that. These directors, uh, Jimmy and Chai, are smart. They're engrossed. They, they're in love with nature, and the, and the, the majesty of the ocean is going to be one of the characters. And so, uh, yes, this is their first film working with actors, but they're super <sighs> smart. They know what they're doing, and they actually they're in big demand right now for all kinds of feature films. But ours will be oh. their first. So we've got a terrific team: the producers, the directors, and you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Is that a friend of mine in the movie business? I said, Gail, you know, I'm something of an actor. I I, I performed in an off Broadway show. I've been standing on stage for forty years, uh, singing and <laughs> playing the bugle. Yeah, play, don't not even to mention playing a pretty good <laughs> bugle. You know, I've been acting on my story. I said, should I do a screen test to play myself? And she said, well, I only have one question for you. I said, what's that? She said, do you want anyone to see the movie? <laughs> and I said, oh. Okay, you don't have to beat me over the head with a shovel. I get it. She said, yeah, you want a movie star. That's what people go to movies for, to see movie stars. So naive of me to think that I would be the star in this movie. I, I'd happily uh, watching Annette Benning. Oh, my gosh, how excited! I'm so, so excited to see it in a movie form. How thrilling and something for us all to look forward to. And Bonnie is also your partner in Everwalk and Ocean's Commit. Tell us about those beautiful initiatives. Well, you know, when we got done with the swim, and that would be my last swim, people always say to me, what, what, what swim are you going to do next? I can't wait to follow it. <laughs> well, I was swimming all my life, and this was the goal. This was the holy grail. There's nothing else. I can't, like, look at the map and say, oh, maybe I'll swim over there. Maybe I'll swim over there. I'm done with that. And I did everything there was to do. The dream is done. But there was that feeling I mentioned before, swimming over the curvature of the earth. And walking you know the human being was meant to walk you know it's only been recently a hundred years ago with the advent of the car mm. that we stopped being the the big 
planet walkers that we were meant to be. And a lot of people think that a lot of our immune diseases and whatnot have come about because we're not walkers anymore. We sit. They say sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. So yes, there are people clearly who are extreme and they're out playing rugby and they're running ultra marathons. Well, that's a whole different small group and good for them. <laughs> but the average person, you know, every day could get out and walk a lousy little mile, just walk. So Bonnie and I started this initiative called Everwalk. And we mean ever by every day, every, every day for the rest of your life, everybody, children up to old, old people, just get out and walk, get to know your neighbors, give a wave, get to know your, you know, the plants and the trees and the lending libraries in your neighborhood. You know, go walk and get your newspaper instead of getting in your car and driving everywhere. So, you know, it's a pretty big goal to take America, a car culture, and turn it into a walking culture. But that's our goal is to get as many people as we can, not just here, we have Aussies walking with us at everwalk.com and we have an app, Everwalk. The Aussies are starting to join us. We have a nature club and a photography oh. club and a book club and all that. And under Everwalk, there's a new initiative called Oceans Commit. And thank you for leading that for me, oceanscommit.com. And it's because of my immersion, my, my falling in love with this blue planet. I became in awe of it. And look at what's happened. Look at the plastic pollution of our magnificent seas. And we can do something about it. You don't have to be an activist and end your life for it, but you could reduce single-use plastic. Every one of us could. It's been two years now since I used a little small plastic water bottle. I can put water in a in some other kind of, you know, container and never use that plastic. So am I completely dedicating my life to no plastic at all? No, it's not easy to do. I have garbage bags still that I put out on the street once a week for my own garbage, but I'm doing my little part and Oceans Commit, we just want people to go on there and commit to reducing single-use plastic in your lives. And we will do walking events that promote the you know the the reduction of single-use plastic so ever walk and oceans commit are tethered together now i was reading you actually had a big series of launch events i think it was that obviously just before the pandemic were about to go ahead and then had to close down but it's exciting that when yeah. things open up again you'll be able to do those yeah we will and bonnie and i are going to egypt in early november there's a wonderful historic swim there called the swim of the pharaohs so they've invited <gasps> and Bonnie to be part of it. It's on the Red Sea, turquoise water, it's gorgeous. So we're going to sort of be the big uh, celebrity <laughs> of, the, of the event, but Bonnie and I are gonna do something there that day called the Walk of the Pharaohs. Yes. And you can find it on everwalk.com and Oceans Commit to join us virtually from wherever you are. Oh, we will absolutely do that. So, you know, we I was about to get married seven days after we were on NECA. Yeah. So we still haven't had our honeymoon because obviously COVID happened and it was meant to be in Egypt. So I no will way. follow along. <laughs> I just think it's the most mystical, beautiful place. And we've done the Middle East a couple of times. And every time Egypt has been a red zone, too too much in turmoil for Australians to go in there. Yeah. So it, we've missed it every time we've done Turkey, Jordan, Israel, like all so close around the region and have never made it. Four times, yeah. four times. So maybe oh, the no. lucky fifth. <laughs> the fifth time, that's going to be your time. Yeah. I know it. <laughs> 
Well, just a couple of quick questions to wrap up. One of the big premises of this podcast is the idea of play TA. And either you love your job, but you need distance because I think even if we love our job, it can become all consuming and you need you need to get you know, refresh, you need to rejuvenate, you need clarity, you need like to have a, let your brain have a break. Or if you don't love your job, it's important to find some kind of play or pleasure or joy that isn't productive. That's a waste of time that you allow yourself to indulge in. That's just for pure joy. Because I think even if you love your job, you never want to get to the end of your life and think, wow, I worked and I died and I really wished that I had less fun. I don't think anyone has wished that they had a less good time while they were here. So outside of work and speaking gigs and podcasts and writing and speaking, you know, what are the things you do just for your joy? You know, I mentioned before my love of the ocean and, uh, you know, and I know most of many Aussies live along the coast. I think 65% of all the population of the world live on a coast somewhere. Uh, But even if you don't, you know, if you live near a beautiful lake or on a a river, the waters of the world, um, which make us the blue planet we are, are a, a source of inspiration and peace and joy. So sometimes at midnight, of course, Teddy's no longer with me, but sometimes at midnight, Bonnie and I have taken our dogs down to the ocean. Yes, it's part to give them exercise, but it's mostly for us to hear that sound of the waves rolling in to look out at the horizon. I think it's important not to just be looking at a screen that's right up against you. It's part of what Everwalk is too. Mm. Get out, look up at the blue sky, look at the beautiful trees around you. Even if you don't see the ocean and you can really see to the, all the way to the horizon, you can look farther than the walls of your home. So I, I think that one of the joys that I get is every day I'm either out walking or I get to the ocean and I have a vision that's farther than the computer screen and the walls of my home. You know, it, it sort of uh, expands. It's a horizon that expands my horizons. Yeah, one of the things I do, uh, even though it's winter and being cold and wet are two of my least favourite things. One of my dear friends who's just got such a zest for life has created a little swim club where we go and watch the sunset in the water at the beach. And it's it's the middle of winter here. It is horrifying, but... The water, even though it's horribly cold, is like buttery smooth. And watching a winter sunrise, there's something special. There's more pink. I don't know what it is, but I was in the water yesterday thinking about this interview and just thinking, how the fuck did she spend 50 hours (laughs) in water much colder and much less smooth than this? I will never. You say you're not special, but I refuse to believe that. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Very last question. What's your favorite quote? You know, so many people have said, you know, seize the day. And I even, we started to come full circle in our conversation today. I had said in the beginning, I want to go to bed every night saying no regrets on that day. So that when I come to the final day of my life, I can look back. It doesn't mean you wouldn't have done things differently, but if you tried, if you were summoning the best that's within you, then you can, you can close your eyes for that final time with no regrets. Well, people have said it different ways, Tempest Fugit, you know, all that stuff. But I was in Rwanda, Bonnie and I went to get a chance to climb with the gorillas a few years ago. And we had a wonderful young man who was a guide. He was a teenager, he was 19 years old, but he was super smart and caring and he had all perspective about life and he was so curious about our lives and what life was like outside of Rwanda. We said to him, 
what do you want to do? You know, if you weren't a guide here, if you're going to do this for the next 60 years and do this for all your life, or are there other things you want to do? What do you want to do in the future? And he said, no, 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 no. Tomorrow is not ours. And I thought, same, same thing as saying seize the day or seize the yay. It's the <laughs> same thing. But it was such a, a beautiful twist on, on English words. Tomorrow is not ours. So it's find a dream we need to look forward and to plan and to envision what we've got. But the truth is that, that tomorrow isn't yours. Today is yours. Today is the day you're living and you'll never get to live it again. So don't waste your time spending too much time thinking about yesterday, even though you need to break it down a little bit, figure out your mistakes or, or, or remember your teddy dog so that the memories are with you. You know, spend a little time in the future so you're sort of excited and you, but, but really live today, seize the day, seize the yay <laughs> and say to yourself, Tomorrow, it is not ours. So oh. I, I just, I love that expression. Oh my gosh. And what a full circle moment also. My big revelation that changed seize the day in my mind to seize the A also happened in Rwanda because I- No way. How weird. I went when I was still a, a corporate lawyer and on a charitable expedition and I we'd had all this cultural training about the genocide and I had all these expectations about what challenges psychologically I would face to embrace this new culture and to do the right thing by them. And the biggest shock to me was like reverse happiness culture shock. I went in thinking, oh, I'm first world, like how am I going to, you know, beat this delicate situation? And I saw instead of feeling intense gratitude for what we have, which of course is one level of thing, the opposite, that they were far happier with very little, unburdened joy, breaking into song, children playing with a leaf for 12 hours, then us back home having all these things and just wanting more and being consumed by more. And it just was the first time I'd separated success and happiness. I was like, they're not the same. They don't equal each other. They're totally different pursuits, but I've been conflating them as one and then wondering why I've got this deep-seated anxiety, wondering what I'm doing and what my purpose is, making other people wealthy and having no legacy. It was, and it was in Rwanda. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, that's such a, you know, incredible bond, you know, that you and I can have together. Yeah. I'm not saying a lot of people, but people interview me or whatnot say you're, oh, you're just successful at everything. You're so driven. And you so, and the truth is, I'm very clear about enjoying each day, about finding laughter and feeling love um, as much as I am about achieving things and being the best I can be, you know, we need to live a multi-layered life to have a successful life. And a lot of people of great success I know are absolutely miserable. Yeah. They haven't known love. They don't know much laughter, even though they've, they've, they've won all the awards and got all the money. And um, I've, I've seen plenty of that. And I've seen poor people like you have all around the world. There are people, many actually tribes, people in Kenya, in both the Kikuyu and the Maasai tribe, who get educated, they go to Nairobi, they go to London afterwards and they study, they go back to live the tribal life, partly to help that tribe yeah. with medicine and other things, but partly because they enjoy life more, living like that rather than in the, the penthouse in London. There are, there are stories of that way, you know? Wow. And I also love one of my fondest memories is you talked about salsa and loving a dance, that on Nekai, you were always one of the last on the dance floor. 
that made me so happy. Like you're like sensible me needs to go and get an early night and like I was getting up early and you were on a different island, but you're like, but I gotta stay and dance. I gotta stay and dance. You know, my my talents run deep. I just I, I play <laughs> the bugle. I whistle. Did you know that whistling is one of my great talents? I did not know that. Okay, this is a bit of Lionel Richie. Hello. Do you know that song? Yeah, of course, of course. So this is a bit of a Wow. I whistle, Sarah. I whistle. Oh, my God. You need to put that on. You need to teach Annette Benning to whistle now. <laughs> oh, no. I, I think she's got plenty to do just becoming a swimmer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for your time. I really do appreciate it so much. I mean, I can't believe you've been on Hillary Clinton's podcast and mine. I mean, they're the same, basically. <laughs> I, it's a toss-up. But thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're a terrific interviewer. You've done, you've done a great deal in life at your young age, and I just... I do. I look forward to seeing your journey as you move forward, Sarah. Oh, well, you've been a very big part of it and I appreciate it so much. Maybe I'll see you in Egypt one day. <gasps> yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, I don't know about you, but if I ever need to kick up the butt, I just think about this woman making her way through darkness and bitter cold with jellyfish all over her face, but continuing on five times. <laughs> and to see what she's doing now with Everwalk and Oceans Commit is simply amazing. Links to both are in the show notes. Hopefully some of the neighborhood can get involved as well as links to her various pages. I was so very lucky to be able to steal some of Diana's time away for the neighborhood. So please do, if you enjoyed listening along, share the episode with any takeaways or aha moments tagging at Diana Naya to shower her with love. Hope you are all having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay.